Hello, girl boss. This is your host, Sophia Amoruso, and we have a great guest today. She's Olympic fencing medalist, author, and entrepreneur, Ibtihaj Muhammad. We'll get to our chat with her in just a second, but first, I want to invite you to join the future of Girl Boss. Go to thefuture.girlboss.com. And also remember, if you like what you hear on today's show, go ahead and rate, review, subscribe, and tell a friend. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long, we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Ibtihaj Muhammad is a United States Olympic fencer, author, and entrepreneur. Ibtihaj started her fencing career when she was 13 years old. She went on to fence at Duke University, where she became a three-time All-American fencer and earned a dual degree in international relations and African studies. In August 2016, she became the first American woman to compete in the Olympics in hijab, and is also the first Muslim woman to win an Olympic medal for the United States. It's about you feeding yourself those positive ideas of success and strength that I think are the difference between winning and losing. Because at that level, everybody's really good. But I think it's about who's who's at the top of their game mentally that separates, you know, the women from the girls in a sense. Other fencing accolades include being a five-time senior world medalist and world champion. In addition to fencing, Ibtihaj is an entrepreneur and author. In 2014, she launched her own clothing company, Luella, which aims to bring affordable, modest fashion to the United States market. And in July, Mattel released their first hijabi Barbie doll, modeled in her likeness as part of Barbie's Shiro line of dolls. Mattel and, and choosing inclusivity and choosing diversity it's like drawing a line in the sand because to speak up in the moment that we're in as a nation to choose inclusion, it's an act of resistance. Her memoir, Proud, My Fight for an Unlikely American Dream, also came out this summer. Finally, Ibtihaj is an activist and force for positive change. She serves as a sports ambassador with the U.S. Department of State's Empowering Women and Girls Through Sport Initiative and works closely with organizations like Athletes for Impact and the Special Olympics. She was on Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential list and serves as an important figure in a larger global discussion on equality and the importance of sports. One thing that I've learned in my not just career as an athlete, but also like in this coming of age as a woman is that when you learn to accept yourself in its entirety and you're unapologetically yourself in every single sense of of that word. I think that's when you you really grow to to love yourself. Today, Ibtihaj is here to talk about the silver lining of adversity, how to resist the current administration and how her faith has empowered her as a woman and as an athlete. We'll get to our chat with Ibtihaj in just a moment, but first, we have some bittersweet news. Maggie is moving up and moving on. 
Not because she hates Girlboss? No, no, never. Are you kidding? Where, what's GB next? GB is my BB. What's next? What's next? Well, um, I'm not 100% sure, but um, I know that I love entertainment, and that's kind of where my heart is, and that's where I want to go. So um, I thought if I didn't make the move now, I probably never would because I love Girlboss so much. Aww. So. I had to just do it. I had to kind of rip the bandaid off and be like, you know what? You have to ask for change, but you also have to kind of do it yourself. So. You do. And that's one of the things I think that's going to be funny here as we grow goal boss as we're creating all this content about like, I know, go chase your dreams. Mm-hmm. Like, don't take, you know, things at face value. Like, you know, you can like you can change directions. And, you know, of course, that's what we want for our team. Right. But I think we may have more i mean hopefully people grow through the organization you know, yeah. hopefully as we grow there will be more positions where you know different people can move departments mm-hmm. or you know move up in their roles as more positions open but it's just a funny kind of paradox isn't it right i know we're empowering everybody including our team mm-hmm. so it's kind of like you, you're revving up your own engine by writing and working here um i always I literally just told someone that when I'm at the Girl Boss rallies, I always come away. I'm like, I want to start my own company. And I don't actually have an idea, but it's just I'm so psyched up from everything that I learned from our speakers, from the girls that attended. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this, too. Do you think you will start your own company? I don't I don't know about that. Let's not get crazy. OK, OK. It's not that crazy just for I, those right. that are listening. But TVD. It's not right for everybody. Right. It's not my current passion. I feel like I, I just want to be um, very creative and be able to focus on that side of my brain, which is probably impossible because every job requires both sides. What did you feel like you learned here? Just in general, the podcast world, I really had no idea how it was created from the inside. I've only ever really listened to them. Um, so that was something that that world opened for me, for sure. Just the whole producing process um, behind it. It's very similar to sides of entertainment that I've liked. So yeah. It's a lot of work. It's a lot more work than it sounds like. You think someone just sits down Mm -mm. and says stuff and asks questions, but um, we are very prepared here. (laughs) Our producer, Lauren, is Mm -hmm. um, on it, and I wouldn't be able to do this without her or without you, Mm -mm. so thank you. Oh my gosh, so welcome. For making this possible for so long. I'll just pop in. Hey! Yeah, you're welcome anytime. Or you can use my echo in some of the dramatic parts, like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh yeah, we can still read Ship Station, Make Ship Happen together. Should we do it one last time? Yeah. Ship Station, Make make Ship ship Happen. happen. That may be the best one you've ever done. I know. Ship Station gets a bonus here. Where can we stay in touch with you? Um, so you can follow me on my journey on Instagram at Mags Renshaw. What could I have done better as a boss? What could you have done better? Um, well, I was really lucky to experience the transition from Nasty Gal to Girl Boss. So I think it was just being able to find your footing again and helping you along the process, giving better direction. Not that you gave bad direction, but just being more precise in what you're asking more for. More clear up front mm-hmm. so I don't have to Which jump in. Which makes it so easy. In the mm-hmm. middle. If you put the work in up front, then the work does itself for you and you don't have to micromanage exactly yeah um so that has been really fun and then just also seeing a company grow your first day um, on the job was at the yeah la rally mm-hmm. the first rally first rally first day on the job literally met her at the happy hour and the whole team and everyone was like great uh-huh. we're so excited to have you there's like, no oh, no better trial by fire than no you and know 
that's kind of the perfect place to start if you can handle that you're like oh this is this is tiring but worth it then yeah you're really immersed (laughs) in everything that we do and everybody on the team and at that time it was like five people on the team I can't I can't believe we did that can you imagine going back to five I'd be like whoa good it's I mean, it's hard to do it now with 25 people. And I just want to thank everybody at Girlboss. I mean, especially Sophia, who's amazing, who's the rock of our company, who just has this vision, rolls with it, and you learn so much from her every day. But also thank you to the team, who's just the most amazing support system, but also is just building and growing and working together And you're just very loved here. You're like, (laughs) just across the board. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no... Like everybody, like I said, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so right, better entertainment no, just... executives, go DM her now. Here I come. Now get ready to hear from Olympic fencing medalist, entrepreneur, and author Ibtihaj Muhammad. So you grew up in Maplewood, New Jersey. I did. What was that like? So Maplewood, New Jersey. 30 minutes west of New York City, very like diverse community, super suburban. My parents bought a house there when I was about four or five. And for me growing up, we always played all these sports. Like it was this kind of idea in our house that you had to be active. Like we played outside till the streetlights came on. I always played, you know, like different rec sports. So I remember playing like t-ball and tennis Mm -hmm. and all of these different sports as a kid in Maplewood. And why do you think your parents wanted you to be active? Did they ever kind of, and how many siblings did you have? I'm one of five kids. I'm right in the middle of five. So I have a sister, brother, me, two younger sisters. And I think that being active in our family um, was twofold. One, in the African-American community, I think that sport is nuclear to the family dynamic in a sense that um, not only playing sports is super common, but spending time with your family, like kind of around TV watching sports. Mm. Uh, I know we did a lot of my brother's Pop Warner like football games um, when I was young. I always watched NFL games on Sundays all day with my dad. That was like a thing that we did. So as we got older having working class parents, my dad being a drug detective for a long time and my mm. mom being a teacher, both now retired, when we were younger, like we didn't have those parents who were there to pick us up from school at three. Uh, so instead of being lost from the hours of three to five, my parents put us in sports so That's they cool. knew where we were. That's cool. I got stuck in some after school day camp kind of shit. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was an only child and it was the same with my parents. I resented it so mm-hmm. much, but sports is like more constructive. Right. Well, I mean, they know where you are, um, but you're also, you know, releasing all that energy. It's tiring you out. So when you get home, you get to like have dinner, go to sleep. Your kids go to bed. Exactly. So did you think in a million years you would be an athlete when you were a kid just doing this recreationally? Never, never crossed my mind. I, for the longest time, thought I was going to be a neurosurgeon. That was my thing. I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. I spent all of my summers at programs at local medical schools and universities um, planning on, you know, at some point studying medicine. That was always the plan. What was your first job? First job. Was it fencing? It was not fencing. So (laughs) first job, senior year, I guess all of the, your mandatory classes are finished. And my, all of my friends, we just decided to all go work retail together. 
worst idea ever. Mm. Um, but I think that retail is one of those things that everyone should do at some point um, because it teaches you, I think, some really hard lessons on how to be aware of how we treat others. And um, I was like, man, people are treating me like shit <laughs> at this retail job. I it, worked at Century 21. Have you ever been there? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're huge. East Coast kind of is like a, it's not discount or is it discount? I think that it's, I think it's kind of like a Nordstrom Rack kind of vibe. Yeah. But I w- worked at one in Jersey with like three of my high school buddies and we did it for a few, a few months towards the end of our senior year. And I was like, at the end, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like you get some money in your pocket, but never work retail again. I don't think you could ever pay me enough. You were kind of coming of age in a post 9-11 world. Mm -hmm. What was that like as a Muslim woman? You know, living in this really accepting, inclusive town, diverse town, post 9-11, I feel like not much in my immediate circle as a kid changed. And I graduated from high school, what, in 2003? So it wasn't until after I graduated high school and I leave New Jersey for, you know, um, North Carolina. I went to Duke. Uh, It wasn't until I got to college that I realized, like, man, people, you know, um, don't have the same experiences that I have. They don't have the same notions of of diversity and inclusiveness that I think I just – I uh, was fortunate enough to grow up around. So I had like a bit of culture shock when I got to North Carolina. Yeah. How did you navigate that? So when I got to Duke, there was a, con- a Confederate flag hanging from one of the dormitory windows that was near mine. It's just like, man, this is this might be a mess. I was the only hijabi on campus, the only woman, Muslim woman who wore hijab. Um, it was hard, but, you know, I think that one thing that I've learned in my, not just career as an athlete, but also like in this coming of age as a woman is that, When you learn to accept yourself in its entirety and you're unapologetically yourself in every single sense of of that word, I think that's when you you really grow to to love yourself, you know? When you're when you're not constantly trying to fill other people's expectations of you. I think that's when you're the best version of yourself. And I think that that's how you navigate spaces like that. You say, you know what? I am who I am, and like you have to accept that. Yeah, if you demand respect, people will respect you. If you take... at some point, and if they don't, oh well, you know. <laughs> and that's always been my vibe. And I wish I had learned that earlier on. So you started. I know I asked about your first job, but you started fencing at what twelve, thirteen? Yeah. So saw fencing for the first time at twelve. Started fencing when I got to high school at thirteen. For those, I mean, I think most of our listeners know what fencing is. What's fencing? So fencing is modern day sword fighting. Uh, so, I like to think of so myself. Cool. Yes, I like to think of myself as a superhero. But it's essentially like we get to you know uh, participate in sport in a way that uses like sword fighting. And I fence saber. There are three weapons. There's foil, epée, and saber. Epée being like more of the marathoners. It's a bit slower. Target area is full body. You score with a point. You can hit anywhere foil you only hit the torso also score at the point uh, it's like kind of an in-between and then saber the weapon that I fence the best target area waist up and use slashing motions to score so more like Zorro Whoa. but we're also like the sprinters of fencing so everything is very 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 fast 
Ibtihaj started fencing when she was just 13 years old. She originally began because she and her parents were looking for a sport with more modest uniforms, but she quickly showed an undeniable talent for the sport, which took her on her life's path. She revealed the moment she knew fencing was her passion. Driving past the local high school with my mom, 12 years old, we're at a stoplight. And we see from the road into that local high school, Columbia High School, we see athletes inside that have on white pants, white jackets, and they have on what we thought were helmets. And my mom is like, I have no idea what that is, but I want you to try it out. And it was simply because, you know, the uniforms adhered to my religious beliefs. I spent so much time with my mom in sporting goods stores trying to find you know, the perfect pair of spandex to go under, like, the track shorts that my teammates wore or to find, like, you know, a short sleeve shirt to go underneath the tank tops that my volleyball teammates wore. And as adults, we don't really think about, you know, the idea behind the uniform, what it means, you know, how it can shape and transform the way kids feel about themselves. And for me, fencing was the first time that I ever um, felt in uniform with my teammates and like when I put on my my mask at 13 as a kid I was like man you know I'm not no one knows that I'm a girl under here no one knows that I'm you know black no one knows I wear hijab it's literally about how good you can be and I've never felt that in sport before um, because I spent I spent my up until that point my whole life out of uniform I remember the stares and the comments that I would get uh, from kids who maybe had never been around a Muslim, had no idea what a hijab was when our team would travel to different uh, games and and, uh, competitions and stuff. So for me, through fencing, when I say I really felt like a superhero, I felt like my fencing uniform gave me these special powers to not, it wasn't even about blending in. It was about um, the ability to excel at something without society defining me based on, to me, superficial things like your skin color or you know your your background where you grew up or your religious beliefs it's like man it's this is something tangible it's like how good how good can you be how much can you excel through sport there are a lot of misconceptions about hijab and the muslim faith so ibtihaj put those misconceptions to rest sharing how her faith and wearing hijab have empowered her as a woman hijab in arabic means to cover and not all Muslim women wear hijab. You know, it's there are millions and millions of people around the world who are Muslim. And um, I hate for people to believe or think that uh, hijab is, is mandatory in a sense. Like, to me, total, total personal choice. If you want to wear hijab, you do. If you don't want to wear it, you don't. And um, so, like, not all Muslim women wear hijab. I like for people to think of hijab in a way that, you know, in the same space that we think of women within the Christian religion, like nuns who cover and, and dress modestly, or even women of um, like Jewish women who are Orthodox who may, you know, wear scarves or may wear wigs, but also, you know, cover their legs in the same capacity that Muslim women do. Yeah, I think for me, when it comes to hijab and and a woman's choice to cover their bodies uh i think the for me the the main reference point that i think we should all use is that it's a choice and it's not really for anyone else to like comment or have an opinion on you know and that's always been my frustration with the the judgment that the muslim f- uh, female community gets about hijab it's like everybody has an opinion about it and 
the narrative has been shaped in such a negative way that somehow Muslim women are oppressed. You know, we were all black. We um, were from Arab countries. And there's some man telling us to cover. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not the case, you know. And that's what I love about um, having this opportunity to represent Team USA at the highest level of sport. That, you know, my story kind of changes that narrative, flips it on its head, and shows people a different idea um, around a Muslim woman who wears hijab. How has it become your superpower? How do you, you know, how have you used that to kind of alchemize your confidence and place in the world? I think that I've always felt like a square fitting into circle spaces. I've always felt like that. I don't know if it's other people's insecurities or what, but even as a kid, I was always that kid who had my hand up first, like in the classroom, who like wanted to know if there's extra credit. Like I was that annoying kid. Um, but I think it's just because I'm type A and I like, I like to be the best at things. I like to... You did it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like it's always been, uh, that's always been a part of my personality. And um, I remember like having all these moments of, of being bullied and being made fun of and so from like a really early age, I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to, you know, live my life operating on other people's misconceptions about me or their limited expectations of me. I'm just going to do my own thing. And so it's not even like, you know, I, I think of my life and who I am in context of hijab because um, my hijab like is a piece of fabric at the end of the day. For me, my faith is is in my heart. Um, I think that there's so much wrapped around identity, not just as a Muslim, not just as a person of color, not just as a woman, but I want to exude, you know, like confidence in every aspect of my life because I always feel like that's something no one can take from you. And that's really your narrative. You know, that confidence has, I mean, I'm looking at a Barbie doll with your name as large as possible on every part of the box and a Barbie that looks just like you and a book next to me called proud. Mm -hmm. That's, that's such an incredible thing to, to be proud of and to find, I mean, not just a platform for your athletic talent, but also what you have to give the world in a much like more Broadway relating to identity is, um, an incredibly important thing. You decided to go out for the Olympics. I did. What? Right. <laughs> How did you decide to do that? Did someone invite you? Was right. everyone around <laughs> you saying like, oh my God, you have to go out for the Olympics? Yeah. Like, You know, I always say that there's a very fine line between like Olympians and crazy because it is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And in writing the book, it's actually you're looking back and you're saying like, man, that happened. Like how, why? Um, it just, I mean, it's, it's crazy to even think about, uh, that, that journey. But I remember in 2012 after not qualifying for the Olympic team, which I didn't even know I was like on track to try to do. I was, I, my first national team was in 2010. I was literally trying to understand the way the world circuit worked. I was trying to increase my world ranking. So we have about eight to 10 or 11 World Cups a year. And the better you do at the World Cups, the better your world ranking. And for me, my first world team being in 2010, Olympic qualifications starting in 2011, I was just trying to understand, trying to get better. 
and 2012, it's like you didn't make the Olympic team. And I saw how that broke people around me. You know, um, my family was sad. I didn't make the Olympic team. I had teammates who still to this day are not over, not qualifying for the team. Like it can break people. And for me, I've always been that person, you know, that says things that are meant for you will never miss you. And not qualifying for the team, I was like, okay with that. And I was actually at an event and a little girl came to me uh, and she had like a little piece of paper in her hand. And she said, you know, are you Ibtihaj Muhammad, the Olympian? And before I could say anything to her, I, I was so used to that routine of like, oh, sorry, I'm not an Olympian, but, you know. And a friend of mine, you know, interjected before I could say anything to this little girl. And she said, you know, she's not an Olympian. And I was like, oh, my God, I hate this girl. She's not a friend. But I also said to myself, you know, I saw myself in this little girl. I remember all these moments in my career where I was told that I, like, didn't belong. You know, I was a black kid in fencing. That's, like, super rare. I was a kid in hijab, you know, in fencing. Rare. And... I remember these moments of being told no or that I didn't belong. And it was in 2012, after not qualifying, that I decided to embark on the journey of qualifying for the 2016 games. So it was four years of like head down, myopic in my vision, uh, myopic in my training. I mean, I like was the first person in the gym, the last one out. And it was all on a leap of faith. Because just as easy as it is for you to qualify, it could easily not happen for you. How many hours in a week did you train? training? The devotion that you have to have to qualify for the Olympics is, I mean, it's like second to none. You have to, you have to live it. I mean, I ate, slept, drank, fencing. I would, you know, wake up before the sun to go running. I would, you know, be with my trainer by 8 a.m., I would have a few hours in the afternoon to eat, and then I would be on a train to New York City to do do fencing-specific training at night. So it was like 9 to 5, 5 to 9 kind of thing where you're just always training. And then when you're not training, you're watching fencing videos. You're reading notes on your opponents, you know, trying to track your own progress, and then also trying to milk and service these injuries because it's very demanding on your body to say – you know, train, you know, train like, you know, a horse, but then also like be in peak top physical shape all the time. Um, and your body responds to that. We spend, fencers spend, um, we travel to like 12, 15 different countries a year for camps, for competitions. So you're always on the road. Like imagine how you feel just taking that, you know, flight from LA to, to New York. It's hard. And we're traveling overseas all the time. And I think one of the hardest things is um, not just the physical demand that, that elite sport requires, but also the mental one. And it's like, you know, being away from family, being away from friends, and sac- so much sacrifice involved with qualifying for the Olympic team. What was that moment like when you qualified for the Olympics? Yeah. I was um, in Athens, Greece for a World Cup. I had Before we arrived in Athens, I had a, a layover in Poland, in, in a lounge in Poland, and I eat uh, salmon. Had raw salmon worst idea ever got food poisoning oh no it was the worst the blessing is that uh, top 16 in the world don't compete on the first day of the world cup so i had a, a day to recover but 
you know, the four other girls who got sick did not have that luxury and, and went out like first round, you know, food poisoning is hard on your body. And for me, I had an Olympic qualifier. So I ended up doing really well, win a bronze medal at that qualifier. And when I take my flight back home from Athens, I'm, you know, doing the things I normally do. I'm like calling my trainer to schedule like my next session, uh, figuring out, you know, meal prep and stuff like that. And I got an email, like a Google alert. I have Google alerts on myself. And I got an email from Team USA that's like, Ibti Haj Muhammad, like first Muslim woman uh, in hijab to qualify for the U.S. Olympic Wait, team. Wait, you found out from a Google alert? I did. Well, I, that's really professional of I them. I found out. I found out with you probably that I qualified. For Ancient the organization. Team. You know what it is? They are just such a hot mess. USA fencing that I'm not even surprised they didn't tell me. <laughs> well, can you tell me about a time where you? I mean, what does it feel like to face? the ultimate opponent. I'm sure there's been times, I mean, when someone has a reputation and you've never competed against them before, I mean, the feeling of like psyching yourself out to make that happen when like the statistics are against you. How do you make that? How do you get over that fear? So I think that, you know, in the beginning, I was always psyching myself out. I'm like, oh my God, this girl's amazing. Like, what am I going to do? Especially when I was new to the World Cup circuit. And then you start to develop this confidence and what I like to call like my Muhammad Ali mantras. I start to tell myself like how much of a badass I am and how good I am and how strong I am. And it's not even about you actually being that. Like you could be up against world number one and you're only like world number seven, but it's about you feeding yourself that positive, those positive ideas of success and strength that I think are the difference between winning and losing because you know at that level everybody's really good but I think it's about who's who's at the top of their game mentally that separates you know the women from the girls in a sense the women from the girls I love that I've never heard that so you sound so positive like you're able to psych yourself out for and I just overcome anything achieve be a champion but I know you've been open about dealing with anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. For our listeners, what are your tips for, I mean, it's, it's, it affects so many of us and so many of us are unwilling to talk about it, don't know where to go to find treatment for it. There's mm-hmm. It's wrapped up in a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. What are your tips for listeners who might be dealing with the same thing? You know, um, I would encourage, you know, whoever's out there listening to seek help. That was something that changed the direction of my life and my career as an athlete. I was dealing with severe um, sadness and it was affecting, you know, my day to day. I couldn't on days where, you know, I would come home from a World Cup. I had a hard time getting out of bed. And I remember having these conversations with my mom and saying, you know, I'm so sad and I don't know what to do. I don't know uh I don't know what this is that I'm experiencing. And I, I love my parents like so much, but um, my parents think that the cure for anything is prayer. <laughs> so my mom's like, you got to pray more. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's not it. <laughs> um, but I know that for me, the best thing that I could have done as an athlete uh, in that moment was ask for help because my sadness and my anxiety that I experienced in competition manifested themselves physically into performance anxiety So I would travel to China, I would travel to Senegal, to Tunisia for World Cups, and game time, my body would shut down. 
I would get lethargic and sleepy and like the referee is like, you know, on guard. They say pray, you know, and they tell you to go. They say like, Ale, that's what they're telling you in French. And I'm like, I hear it, but I couldn't, my, my feet felt like lead. I couldn't get myself to move. And when I sought the help of um, a sports psychologist, Team USA sports psychologist, she helped me understand what performance anxiety was, how to talk myself out of this, this state of, of anxiousness. Um, but also I think that for myself, um, the sadness that I felt, uh, was directly correlated to the treatment that I experienced from teammates and coaching staff. And there was this like mean girl vibe and environment that, that I was privy to as a member of Team USA. And when I decided that I wasn't going to allow anyone to control how I felt about myself and I kind of regained uh, control of my own feelings I was able to like literally pull myself out of out of that state of sadness because when you have someone who's telling you you know you're not enough you're not capable you know you you lost because you don't have what's you don't have what's necessary to be successful that can really eat away at you and your self-esteem and at some point, uh, thank God, before the Olympic qualification started, I started to reject all of that. And I was like, you know what? This is toxic and I'm not going to let it affect me anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally chose happiness. I was like, you know what? F these people, you know, forget how they feel about me. And I'm just going to go out here and I'm going to like slay. They're stunted. Right. And even even if I don't win, even if, you know, I lose, I was still happy and I chose happiness. And for me, this was this really defining moment in my career. I had the best season of my life when I and this was Olympic qualification. To me, that's a gift from God because I know how um, fickle sport can be. Um, when I when I made this conscious decision to be happy in moments of defeat and moments of, of success, uh, I was the best version of myself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that pressure can make you perform in some ways, right? Like there's so much on the line and I think a lot of people think that fear or anxiety, it can be debilitating, but mm-hmm. it can also be the driving force. Oh, it can because then you start to trust yourself. Because like when you're spending hours and hours preparing, 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 and when it's go time, you have to trust that you've put in the hard work and everything that you need in that moment to be successful. You have to trust the process. And I think when you when you arrive at that realization, like that's when you're successful. And so the Olympics is so fascinating, and I don't really know how to describe this. I'm sure you can describe the dynamic better than I can. But you're on a team, Mm -hmm. but only one of you can win a medal. You win a medal for your team. I mean, more than one of you can, Mm -hmm. but you're also competing individually to a certain extent, right? How do you balance that? So I've never been a huge fan of team sports. I remember (laughs) playing uh, volleyball and looking at my team like we would lose this is when in high school we would lose and I'd look at the girl and be like why didn't you die for the ball right? <laughs> um, so for me fencing was a unique balance because you're individual first you're the only one uh, responsible for that win and in, in that moment but then uh, interestingly enough you all qualify for the Olympic team individually but then um, that next day you're a team so your teammates go from being your competitors in the individual event um, you might face a, a teammate at some point um, in that individual competition. But then at the team event, all three of you are a team. Um, and then you're fencing against Ukraine, France, Italy, Russia. You're 
USA like competes against, you know, those different countries. We have so much more with Ibtihaj coming up, but first let's talk a little bit about Skillshare. We like to share skills mm -hmm. here on Girl Boss Radio, and Skillshare is an even bigger marketplace to to do that. Mm -hmm. And so, if you don't know what Skillshare is, it's an online learning platform with over 20,000 classes in business, marketing, technology, design, and more. You can take classes in everything from social media to web development. If you can think of it, they definitely have it. Maggie, you've worked with Skillshare. Yeah, I've taken a few classes. I really, really love it. I just came off of um, a photography class, which was very insightful. I didn't realize how bad I was with a camera uh, until finishing that class and seeing the like before and after photos. It's kind of like after you work out for two months, you're like, wow, that's different. Know. You know, just the lighting, just every little metric that you really wouldn't think of with a point and shoot changes and makes the photo even more beautiful. Uh, now you can take your before and after photos with a nice camera. I should. Um, Everyone's going to be like, wow, you look so good. There's, there's just a the watercolor camera. course. Like I really, mm. I like mm. get in, I like on a nice summer day, I'll just sit by the pool and I'll bust my watercolors and literally it's just like I paint stripes like I don't Beautiful. I or hills with okay. like grass and a sun in the corner you I know love, mm -hmm. with like little seagulls and some clouds I know that like that's well. it maybe a tree or a small house so I need to learn because watercolors can be so pretty it is and those colors blend together and make brown all of a sudden oh, I'm like well yeah. I ruined that oops, page oops yep. how do I mix colors oops mm -hmm. so if you want to be better at watercoloring or taking photos or pretty much anything else mm -hmm. join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. Yeah, I said that. Skillshare is offering Girlboss listeners two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. <laughs> 